Right. Hey guys, it's the Tracy for Governator Show. How are you guys? Are you still alive? Are you alive? Anyway, um, today we're going to listen to Lincoln Project. And uh, I don't know if you got the memo, but this podcast is to support the libtard movement. And like Midas Touch and Lincoln Project and uh, Marielle Trump and David, I mean, uh, Michael Cohen and Mayor Culpa Podcast and Democracy Now! And also Gaia and stuff. So if uh, I'm kind of hungry, peckish, quite peckish. Oh. And um, so let's have at it. Might go for a bike ride, maybe, maybe not. This says uh, it's called Jul- well, it's July 14, 2022. The blinders are coming off. Host Reed Galen is joined by fellow Lincoln Project co-founder Rick Wilson to recap the seventh public hearing from the House Select Committee on January 6th and give the reactions to the testimony heard both taped and in person plus voting for the 2022 midterms begins in about six weeks how are the hearings shifting election dynamics for the pro-democracy coalition well my answer to that is it should be we should be um, focusing on what works apparently what is the only thing that, well, not the only thing, just uh, public pressure campaigns. Yeah, they work really well. And uh, y'all have to become uh, keyboard warriors, as they're called. And uh, the Trumpaholics. <laughs> the Trumpaholics, I like that. I'm drunk on Trump. Trumpaholics, man, they. Uh, they're really good keyboard warriors, aren't they? They're they're uh, real hell behind that screen. Anyway, so w- the uh, libtards, as they call us, li- we libtards need to um, you know wage this war of uh, the internet, basically. Um, it's a war for the, yeah, the hearts and minds of America, but, um, I mean, keyboard warriors would help. So, young people, step up to the plate. Shout out to KAMPs, to Student Radio at University of Arizona, and also KPYT, Pasquayaki Tribal Radio, coming out your ears. With style. Shout out to our indigenous fan. Anyway, let's get this party started, man. The blinders are coming off. Hey, everyone, it's Thank God. Before we get started, just want to make sure that you're following along oh, with no. the Lincoln Project on oh. all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee hearings. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning against Donald Trump and his Good. attempt to steal the 2020 election. Please let him get lost. Please, Christ. Just how close we were to losing it all. Yeah. And now, on with the show. Well, we ain't out of the, we ain't out of the woods yet, my friends. Welcome 
I won't rest until he's safely behind bars. Safely behind bars. Host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of New York Times bestsellers, Running Against the Devil, and Everything Trump Touches Dies. Ready? The only Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming back. Read Ready with the devil. I know. I know. It is secret, undisclosed. It's good for our relationship. It is, as always. All right, so Rick, this past Tuesday, after being off for a couple of weeks, we saw the House Select Committee on January 6th resume its public hearings with its seventh convening. The session was led by Representatives Jamie Raskin of Maryland and Stephanie Murphy of Florida and focused on the role that right-wing extremist groups played in the violence that took place that day. It featured testimony from Jason Van Tatenhove, a former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, and Stephen Ayers, a participant in the insurrection. So after seven of these, Rick, what was your top takeaway from what you heard and saw? If you think about the 1-6 committee as sort of a pincer movement, what you saw... Mm -hmm. Um, the hearing this week was a flank of the pincer movement that described pincer. both the knowledge that the election had not been stolen, the evolution of Trump's legal team selling this lie to him, even though the professionals and the, the actual non-mutants were telling him it's all bullshit, and how that the lie then evolved into a very considered plan, a conspiracy, if you will, to have an armed and violent crowd Insurrection. One of the witnesses, Jason Van Tatenhove, so he was a guy that Tatenhove. worked with the Oath Keepers, which is, as he said, is not a veterans organization. It's not a community support huh. group. He worked with Stuart Rhodes, the, you know, I think soon to be, if not an already imprisoned leader of this. And he was very clear, Rick, that this was an armed militia movement, that its leadership hoped became a paramilitary Armies. organization right. on behalf of Donald Trump. So think Created back an to army. the 1920s and early 1930s. Brown Constitution talks Germany. about that. These That's are people fucking who treason, are terrorism. well and heavily armed, looking for a fight to advance a specific Sedition politician or political ideology. And election yep. fraud. And the Brown Church was one of the array of paramilitary organizations in Germany at the time. And I know people get upset when we compare the American militia movements and the American paramilitaries to the Nazis and their precursors, but if the jackboot fits <laughs> wear it. You... These people, Stuart Rhodes in particular, so what if and you're the upset? other organizers of the it's Oath freaking Keepers, they built an organization that they claimed supported the Constitution and the country, but was in fact comprised of people who demonstrated on the 1-6. They were willing to use violence to overthrow an American the election, government. a free and fair election, mm -hmm. and that they were an accepted part of the Republican coalition that was trying to help Trump illegally claim that he had won this election. And you know, the thing about the Republican Party, there's an old lesson that they derive from communism, and it's no enemies to my right. You know, Mitch McConnell and Stuart Rhodes, there's no six degrees of separation there. It's one degree of separation. They're all in service to Trump. They are all dedicated to stealing this election. And the truth of the matter is, what you saw this week from the two gentlemen who left those movements was an act of bravery 
that no member of the White House staff saw fit to exhibit. No member of the White House staff even called a reporter and said, holy shit, you can't imagine what they're doing. This is crazy. I have to stop this. Not one of yeah, them. Yeah, I was worrying about that. Why going, didn't anybody go to the press? They're probably, their life was probably well, threatened. I just want to bring in McConnell, who you mentioned, which is, you know, on December 15th, McConnell congratulates President-elect Joe Biden. The election had been called for President Biden on Saturday, November 7th, but it was an intervening six weeks until McConnell did it after the Electoral College officially met in state capitals and, you know, cast their ballots for Biden. And I think it was on background, Rick, but the quote, and I'm almost sure it was from, like, a guy like Josh Holmes, who's sort of the maestro of Mitch's world, which was, like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, here are him. And what they either refused to believe or couldn't believe or went along with, and I think, frankly, with these guys, it was probably one of the first two. They either couldn't believe it or wouldn't believe it, was that in those intervening six weeks, they allowed this conspiracy to pick up speed because the normals, and I put that in air quotes, had told him he'd lost. The crazies were still trying to hold on to power, but we'll never know if official Washington, specifically Republicans en masse, had said, thank you, Joe Biden, not on December 15th, but on November 8th, whether or not this ever happens, because now too many walls have closed in around him. He can't count on Republican members of the U.S. House. He can't count on the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's of the world to do dirty work for him. And therefore, every part of an accident chain that needed to occur, there was always a circuit breaker somewhere, and they didn't pull it. Since 2015, gentry Republicans, respectable Republicans, have been saying, don't worry. What's the worst that can happen? It's not that bad. We'll get him under control. We'll keep it from going completely off the rails. It's going to be fine. And, you know, it's never fine. It never stays off the rails. And I remember having a conversation right at the beginning of COVID with one of his squishier but still, you know, supportive members of Congress who said, look, you know, he's going to let the CDC take care of it. He's going to come out of this looking better than before because he's smart enough to know you know, we've got to get a vaccination program running. And of course, yeah, right. a million dead Americans. It makes you think because that. of the fuckery he played going into this. The other thing I think is really interesting is we saw now direct evidence of communication with Steve Bannon, who is the heart of this cancerous plot. And Bannon's long conversations with Trump, followed immediately by his declarations on the 5th of January about how it's not going to go like you think. It's going to be a much more shocking event than you believe. When he said that, I believe you saw one more piece of evidence of this conspiracy with these outside individuals, Bannon, Stone, Alex Jones, Ollie Alexander, Charlie Kirk, all these other people. Insurrection, charge them all with insurrection. But all these people who were organizing to bring activists to Washington to attack the Capitol, and they didn't think it was going to be a peaceful march. There's no way that all the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Boogaloos, and the rest of these idiots showed up got out of their mom's basement, drove to D.C. with their AR-15s in the back of the truck, tooled up, got their gear, got their kit, and showed up in a tweet from the president a few days before. This was a plan. There was a plan from the beginning. There is other evidence that the unit of Oath Keepers who went in the stack of the Capitol steps on the north side, they had a direct understanding of where the electoral count documents were held. And I don't remember their names, but the two women that busted out of there and escaped with the Electoral Count Act certified documents. 
mean, those two women saved the country. Those people knew what they were looking for. They were going to say, oh, these were destroyed. Oops, we have to do it again. Back to the States. And at that point, this conspiracy that was going out out in the States with Trump's weirdo clack of bizarro land lawyers, Rudy, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman, Sidney Powell. Powell, all of this cohesiveness is what we saw out of this hearing, that this was a plan. And look, you and I both know this. We come from this world. Republicans don't take a dump without having a plan. (laughs) So I want to talk about that for a second because, first of all, all these events are being organized. Katrina Pearson, Caroline Wren. Katrina Pearson is a communications staffer. Caroline Wren's a fundraising staffer, but they're both involved in the production and organization of these events. Katrina Pearson, very concerned about the types of people that are likely to show up on the stage with the president, but gets over. And in fact, in a text exchange with Brad Parscale, the infamous Brad Parscale, as all this stuff is going on, he says, he's causing this. And she said, no, he's not. He's like, come on, Katrina. He is. When Brad Parscale, who is basically Trump's dog, knows what's happening and shows a fractional momentary glimmer of a moral center, and look, I'm not surprised Katrina Pearson didn't like those guys. She has a long beef with Ali Alexander back from their days in Texas. But even Katrina Pearson, who has tried to gentrify herself and tried to sort of polish herself up as an acceptable Washington figure, recognized that you don't want some of these people on the camera with the president. And guess why? Because they said the shit that they said while they were marching down to the Capitol. Hang Mike Pence. It's 1776 and, you know, the blood of patriots will be spilled put gallows up on the on the Capitol. All these things, even they knew. And again, what did Katrina Pearson do with that knowledge? Not a goddamn thing. She sat on it. And one thing we also now know is that Wouldn't on the you day, ask on the Trump, 6th, uh, what, Alexander ask Preet, about what Trump said chief of staff to the gallows that they set up in front of Congress to hang Mike Pence. And other members that were in one of the several war Was he pleased? So there's another line of ban Delighted. Right. And so the, all of these people again came together. And I think that Congresswoman Liz Cheney started to put together those pieces in her closing remarks yesterday. I do want to talk about, though, like what Trump knew and when he knew it. So there was an original version of his speech. Ooh, what he knew, he, he orchestrated it. It was his was idea. Inflammatory. Duh. And the White House counsel and the speechwriters took out the more inflammatory. Right, when, when even Stephen Miller's like, whoa, boss, this is too much. Right. So it came out. Trump then has a phone call with Mike Pence, where Pence says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. You know, Trump calls him a wimp, calls him the P word, and orders the language to be put back in the speech uh-huh. about we're going to march down to the Capitol, the Mike Pence stuff, which indicates to me in my only role as a jailhouse lawyer that Trump knew what he wanted to say and knew what he needed to say in his mind if Pence didn't Duh. go along with it, which denotes some sort of knowledge before the fact. I think it is increasingly hard to dispute that Trump desired the violent outcome of 1-6. And I may be racing ahead of this as a non-lawyer, but what is another piece of evidence we know about that? In a previous 1-6 committee hearing, we had reporting that Trump said, I don't care if they have weapons taken out of the bags. They're not going to hurt me. Right, they're not here to hurt me. They're not here to hurt me. And they're going to march to the Capitol. I'm the fucking president. And the fact that the president. One Mike Pence reference to eight, you know, that Miller put back in, 
the rhetoric that was meant to inflame that crowd about stolen votes and all the other hoo-ha. I think all of that comes down to a lot more knowledge and a lot more intentionality on his part to cause this attack to happen. Right. So I want to talk about Stephen Ayers. Stephen Ayers was a gentleman who, near as we can tell, was not a member of an organized group. It's a guy who's from northeastern Ohio, someplace, I assume, outside of Cleveland. And he said, I heard about it on social media. I heard Trump say, come to Washington. I hooked up with some guys I knew were going. Then Trump said, storm the Capitol. We're all going to go. We go. We thought he was going to come. We thought he was coming with us. Yep. And then I go in and, you know, Mr. Ayers, I think, gave interesting, perhaps even impressive testimony. But like he did appear to be kitted up himself, at least in that one admittedly grainy photo. But then he said, when Trump tweeted, it's time to go home, we left. And why I think that's important, Rick, is because I think it's maybe the most personalized and crystallized version of the individual hold Donald Trump has on millions of Americans. That's a really good point, man. It's abuse of the power of the office of presidents, quite simply. I mean, like anybody is, almost anybody is impressed. They were stealing it from him. It affected guys like Stephen Ayers. And, you know, there were a lot of people. And And star fuckers, too, because of the apprentice. But you know what? He was braver than dozens of White House staff members. He showed courage. And he also showed a greater courage than not just the, like, the moment of testifying. He showed courage by saying, I did something wrong. I was in a, an environment where I was being fed this conspiracy and this craziness, and I followed it. And then I took the blinders off. You know, I've talked to a few people who said, you know, I stopped watching Fox and my world changed in a month. And I think CNN actually did Hi, a baby. study of that, of a number of people. And it wasn't like 90%. It was like 13%, maybe not even that high. But the point was yeah. a demonstrable number of people are able to climb outside the reality right. distortion field when that stuff is removed. And when Trump was removed from Twitter, and now that he's been reframed a little bit by Fox, I think it is what's contributing to some of the decline in voter intention to vote for him in 24. But Fox viewership plummeted after January 6th. He's less powerful than he used to be. He's still a giant. He still controls what I call the Trump hotties, about 35% of the Republican world. They will set themselves on fire for this guy. And he'll set them on fire, as we saw with Mr. Ayers, who admitted he lost his job. He was a supervisor at a factory, right? So he wasn't on the line. This was a guy who was in management, right? He had to sell his house. He said that he was grateful that some of the federal charges against him had been dropped. But this is a guy who's going to have to go figure his life out now, as I assume. I don't know if it's a misdemeanor or a felony, but as a federal convict of some sort. But Trump's life hasn't changed demonstrably. Donald Trump, the conspiracy head, still sits in the bridal suite at Mar-a-Lago, still goes golfing four days a week while he's in Bedminster right now. And aside from the fact that, you know, every time he walks into Melania's room, she's writing in her slam book, this is Ron DeSantis, he hasn't had a material impact on his life from this. And I know there's a lot of frustration with the DOJ right now. They've been working in this bottom-up sort of approach to this thing, which is how they do it. When they start a big investigation of the international drug ring, they don't go for the kingpin first. They roll up the lower-level guys, the distributors, they roll up the chain. I do think we're seeing more and more evidence now that... It's time to start seeing some of the, the motions of these people who were part of the conspiracy, who were part of encouraging this. And, you know, Barbara 
McQuaid this week made a really compelling point where she said, there's an argument to be made that he's an accessory to manslaughter because of the five people who died that day. Because the argument is, if, unless he'd said, we're going to the Capitol, you would not have had a violent march to the Capitol. And what we learned from the hearings this week is there was a plan, a plot, a scheme, a strategy put together by his allies and by some people in the White House there were White House aides who were acknowledging, don't say anything about the 1-6 stuff or the Park Service will get mad at us. We didn't get a permit for this, so don't say anything. They knew what was happening. They knew what the intention was, and they knew who the people were, because you had Katrina Pearson and others who were saying, don't put these crazy people who are violent on the stage with the president. Put them in this other thing in Freedom Plaza. And Trump opened the door to the West Wing so that he could hear the yes, cheering and the music and everything else. And you've got guys like Enrique Terrio from the Proud Boys posting pictures of the colonnade outside the White House. You know, these people were around. They were in the room. They were in a circle of people who told Trump he could go through this and extra power. And even Steve Bannon this week, there's an audio clip that was released this week where Steve Bannon essentially admits it. He lost. Yeah, sure, but we're going to do this anyway. So, Rob, can we play that clip from Bannon? And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early than count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. We're going to have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's going to be sitting there tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm the king. And he'll be all over, he'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter? Is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no, he'll be, because then it doesn't matter. Remember, here's the thing. After that, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and finally he's going to say, fuck you. How about that? Because he's never going to, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. Because he, no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm yeah, court, uh, agree. I'm directing the attorney general. To shut down all ballot places in all 50 states, it's going to be no. He's not going out easy. Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. You know, one other quick thing before we I close up on the January 6th, or two more things, I should say. One is Pat Cipollone's testimony about this insane December 23rd meeting in the Oval Office in which it was the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell, Patrick Byrne, the head of Salesforce.com. That's what I call her, too. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, retired. Totally a crack And they're trying to make their case to Trump that, you know, he should push and push and push on this. And, you know, somebody goes to get civil and he's like, you got to get down here. And he's like, how the hell do these people get in? And, like, you can't just walk onto West Exec no. and into the West Wing lobby. Right? That's not a no. thing. Right? That since, like, Teddy Roosevelt's second inaugural. Right? Like, these things so like oh it's a junior staffer who the hell like there's a process right there's social security numbers there's birth dates there's all this other stuff i mean patrick byrne is an individual tied to maria butina a, a russian, russian spy a russian, spy, yeah. a russian intelligence asset so like that was one again as someone who was lucky enough to work there, it's just like sure what the fuck is going I mean, on i mean you worked there uh, you know when i worked in the, in the administration i've been to the white house enough times where being badged in is not trivial 
these guys like Enrique Terrio, who are always wearing their, you know, chest rigs and their LBVs and their other gear, I can't imagine the service was delighted by this, but clearly they were told by someone, probably Mark Meadows, these guys are okay, they're our friends, let them in. And if you're calling the White House switchboard and you're some rando podcaster with, you know, some sort of scabies like Steve Bannon, you don't get through to the president just randomly. And you don't talk to him twice in the same night, the night before a major act of insurrection. So I have to say what the committee has done brilliantly, and I, I will admit it again, I was skeptical. In the beginning, the committee was very divided on what this was going to do. I think what happened was they were born again hard when they found out Americans gave a damn. When they saw Americans were watching this and paying attention to it and focusing on it, where they knew this was something that mattered to the country more than the sort of right-wing apparatus thought it would be. And they keep drilling down into the details and the data, and it's more and more of a damning case against these people. Right. Well, speaking of both phone calls and criming, Donald Trump continues to crime, even up to this moment. So... One of the things, Rick, that has been, I think, a brilliant piece of stagecraft is that they end every hearing with a little bombshell. A little cliffhanger. Just to keep yeah, you right, coming back, right, right? right? And in the seventh hearing, it was Liz Cheney noting that a witness who has not yet appeared before the committee received a phone call from Donald Trump. They did not answer right, they it. they didn't answer it. Immediately referred it to their attorney, who immediately referred it to the January 6th committee, who, Rick, I think is an important thing. Intimidating another count of intimidating witnesses. Which is being lost. Tampering. Yeah, you know, this is your favorite president. I'm calling you to charge say, him. What are you going <laughs> to not do anything? Right. Fuckers. Say, definitely, definitely, definitely not talk to those on the right. this week. So don't say anything <laughs> about it. And I want to say that I am your favorite president. And when I'm back, and I will be back... <laughs> Yeah, you're going to have a job. You've always been my favorite. You've always been my you're favorite. Always, or you're a coffee uh, person. Yeah, you're a favorite person or you're a coffee person. There's only two places for Trump. But going back to one thing you said about the Justice Department, there's a lot of people like, get rid of Garland now. Do this now. Like, Stop. guys, let's be clear. Stop. First of all, be grown-ups. Second of all, it's the Justice Department. If you don't have any belief in them, I don't know what to tell you. But I will say this, is that to Rick's earlier point, they are building a case or cases against numerous people. And I've said it before on the podcast, and if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. They are setting people up for the Henry Hill moment. Absolutely. You're going to go to jail. Your wife's going to go to jail. Your kids are going to be orphans. You're never going to get out of this, right? These people don't care about you. Yeah, Make that's your what choice, they need to do. Right? And when you're sitting in front of an assistant U.S. attorney and an FBI Take agent the sitting kid next to your, your lawyer, your perineum gets very, very taut and... You start to see the world in a different way. And you ask yourself, am I going to federal prison for multiple years on behalf of a guy I know would throw me off a boat in half a heartbeat? I think the Henry Hill moment is coming most swiftly for Mark Meadows, who is a centerpiece inside the White House of coordinating all these different players on the outside, who we know now had gone to the war room and spoken to all these different people, had done things and left things undone in the course of this and mark meadows strikes me as a guy who will not prosper in federal prison and he knows that and i will say this also his federal exposure is one thing but you know he's also apparently and i don't know if you folks know this but just after the election mark meadows sent a message to bill barr at the justice department sending forward an opposition research packet about the lincoln project 
And he mentions you, and he mentions me, and he mentions Stu. And plus a bunch of otherwise innocent and uninvolved people who had retweeted something. So he had a, a he, he clearly, right after the election, asked Bill Barr to go after the Lincoln Project. Right. And so, so guys, I just want to rewind this, and I just want to say it again. On November 11, 2020, eight days after election day, the chief of staff of the White House to the president of the United States sent a political attack document to the attorney general of the United States saying, here's the Lincoln Project info. There had clearly been some communication or discussion beforehand, right? Who ordered it compiled? Who compiled it? Who delivered it? With what intention was it delivered? And so, guys, we'll be asking a lot more questions to Department of Justice, the Archivist, and all the other people the White House. the White House, we may believe, were somehow involved in this because this, Rick, is exactly what everybody wants. The bad guys want you to sit down and shut yep. up. They want you to be scared. But, Rick, we should never underestimate what this really means to what this whole thing was, which was Donald Trump was willing ready and almost able to use state power against his political opponents and to stay in the Oval Office against the wishes of the voters of the United States. That's right. We must never forget what all of this was about. You know, that's exactly right, Reed. And I brought up this case, not because it's just about us, but because it really personalizes the abuse of power. And back in the old days, conservatives were really worried about the abuse of power by the executive and by the state. And now... It had become so regularized, we're probably not the only group. We certainly know we were we were a prominent, known opponent of the Trump White House, but this could happen to anybody. And if you make this a norm that in our society, if you make this a norm in our he politics, had a it's poison, me up. and it's dangerous. Could have told him we're to kill me. We're going to pursue this, folks, as far as we possibly can. And as all these other things are happening, we think it's vital that you, know, you stay involved, you stay engaged. Attention to the fact that the politics in the country right now are changing quickly. We are not in the same doldrums we were in two months ago. The voting intention is switching away from Republicans in a lot of these key races. Part of this is because of one six that people realize that yes, inflation and gas prices and choice and all these other things are important, but it's also a bigger choice about what kind of country you live in and whether we're going to live in a country where the state can target you for your political views. That's a good segue, Rick, to where we are, you know, in the electoral dynamics of mid-July for a midterm election. So to your point, the generic ballot, and guys, that means that when an average voter is asked, if you had to vote for a Republican or a Democrat, which would you vote for? You say Republican, you take a Democrat, right? And they compile all this data, and, you know, it says, okay, 7% more voters are likely to vote for a Democrat in Congress than are that's good for Democrats. If it was plus five for Republicans, that would be good for Republicans. And we've seen that, Rick, this sort of seesaw back and forth. It's now tilted, to your point, back towards the Democrats. We've seen also... Oh, there was a survey as we we're taping this out of Michigan that shows Gretchen Whitmer, the governor up there, up by low end 10 against her opponents and the high of 14. And she's above 50, which, as Stuart will tell you, is a really typically good barometer of where you think that a governor will end up. A lot of these Senate races now, as Joe noted in a memo that he put out back, I think, in January or February, have the absolute kookiest of the kooky, whether or not it's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania or Herschel Walker in Georgia or, you know, Ron Johnson being Ron Johnson, Adam Laxalt being Adam Laxalt. 
Arizona's, you know, we don't know yet, but again, it looks like Mark Kelly's building up ahead of steam. So those are all good things. But the weird thing, too, is, Rick, is that in a survey last week, it was like literally 86% of the country saw us on the right track. Wrong track. Wrong track. Me. Yeah. Wrong track. And, you know, 10% saw us going in the right direction. And President Biden's approval ratings are in like the mid to low 30s. If you just separated everything I said before, those two nut stats, it should equal absolute bloodbath for Democrats. But what you talked about when we first started talking about what effect these hearings have is that there is a depression on Republican enthusiasm and Republican support because of the insanity. And so now what it looks like is that, yes, Biden in the 30s is bad, but there seems to be a disconnect on whether or not it's a referendum on him or whether or not voters see it as a choice of what direction they want. Do they want the insanity, the ugliness, the chaos, or are they willing to take somebody in the Democrats who maybe they don't love, but aren't fucking crazy every day? And that doesn't speak for every Democrat, but it speaks for a lot. You know, it is that choice between distaste and madness. And <laughs> Rick and I are going to wear smoking jackets, yes. sit in front of a fireplace and, with a sniffer and say, distaste or madness, for Frederick? Which one tonight? I believe tonight will be distaste. <laughs> but yeah, no, look. It used to be the president's numbers very strongly affected their own party in the off-year elections. So if the president was at 45, that's where you were, could expect most of your candidates to fall in a, somewhere in that range. But now we're seeing, for two reasons, one, they chose the crazy, and Herschel Walker, and Mastriano, and Adam Laxalt, who you mentioned just now. And folks, I don't know if you saw this week, but Adam Laxalt, Look, I dislike a lot of these MAGAs because they're not conservative, but they're nationalists and authoritarianism is they're part of their philosophy now. Thugs. But Adam Laxall posted a picture of himself grinning, smiling like a madman outside of a refrigerated moored truck on the U.S. border where what? the bodies of immigrants were stored. Oh That's not a person that you want within a thousand miles of power. That is a guy who needs mental counseling. That is a guy who has a really profound, ugly problem. And I think it's important An evil to remember streak. that those people like Adam Laxalt and Doug Mastriano and Herschel Walker are not the exception in the Republican Party. They are now the mainstream. That's right. And so this is where, you know, we've talked about Ron DeSantis is having his summer of love, which huh. is, is he buoyed by all of the clearly tremendous press operation that they have running oh yeah is he buoyed by the sort of what we would call the rump establishment republicans right that i guess you and i would have been a part of because they see him as you said this two years ago as maga run through the car wash right he looks normal he acts normal he's got a normal looking family he doesn't really act normal and all of that's all a facade but what I think you're seeing here is that there are these strike points in the, the MAGA coalition between what we call the Bannon line hey. and the true ultra MAGAs. And like the Bannon line voters hate Doug Mastriano, right? They're not going to like the person in Michigan. But at the same time, like they like Ron DeSantis, maybe in Florida and maybe in a presidential primary. But do they go with him? And I think this also, and I want to bring it back to this as we talk about the electoral dynamics. You know, we've heard rumors. Maybe Trump gets back in. What does that do? Certainly probably doesn't help Republican candidates, right, with his I, I think it would be a damaging blow to most Republican candidates because Trump has already linked himself inexorably to some of the craziest of the crazy. 
And it really makes guys like Mitch McConnell Stephen and Miller. everybody else Gross. lose their minds because they recognize that Trump will start the rally process. He will start the crazy train again. He will spend his days and nights and weeks out there on the road promoting the worst of the worst, and they will lose races down ballot. I mean, Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania are going to have a meaningful effect on Democratic turnout and help a lot of candidates down ballot in legislative races and everything else. And I think that's going to happen in other places like Wisconsin and Michigan as well. Well, this campaign is far, far from over. Oh, yeah. Absolutely still winnable for the pro-democracy candidates in this country. And we need you all to do everything you can. I know I've said it before. We really need you to do it. Join the union.us. Sign up. Help us volunteer in these key states where we're going to make sure that these pro-democracy governors, Democratic Senate candidates who are fighting back against the crazy the union. These secretaries US? of state candidates, yeah. attorneys general candidates, like we're going to need your help, gang. Voting's going to start, Rick, six weeks from now. Yes, yeah, not six weeks. Right, right after Labor Day. So, all right, Rick, before I let you get out of this beautiful room where we're recording, where can our gang find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Instagram machine and on the Twitter. As always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. As always, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, that was great. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be You're sure welcome. to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, okay. follow us on That's Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, like subscribe to, to our newsletter, or make a Instagram. contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup including The Breakdown with Tara Sentmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Seneca and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode. Rick Wilson. Gotcha. I'm following both of you guys now. That was very good. Excellent show. I used to yes you uh so yeah, shout out to KMP Student Radio and KPYT Pasquayaki Tribal Radio. Okay, so let's see, episode, we have more episodes. Let's see, it's all connected with Hugo Lowell. That's, okay, close to again, it's joined by Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian. I just sent him an email, covering the January 6th committee, awesome, okay. I'm going to check that out. So I'm following him, it's good to know, it's good to know, hear him speak. In anticipation of this week's committee hearing, they recap the arc that's been presented over the course of the last five weeks and preview what could be expected in the upcoming July 12th hearing. Plus, given the testimony and evidence presented by the committee, what will Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice ultimately do when it comes to Donald Trump? Sounds perfect. Hey everyone, it's Reed. 
Before we get started, Sorry. just want to make sure that you're following along with the Lincoln Project on all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee I'm hearings. trying, man. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning Good. against Donald Trump and his attempt well, to steal him. the 2020 election. Let him I be hope damned. you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Hugo Lowe, congressional reporter for The Guardian U.S. covering the January 6th. In addition to his work with The Guardian, breaking scoop after scoop after scoop, Hugo also regularly appears as a political analyst for MSNBC, Peacock, and a variety of other outlets. He's coming to us today from Washington, hey, D.C. Hugo, you, my dear. welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Hugo, you've been on the front lines covering the Select Committee on January 6th and its public hearings of the last five or six weeks. So I want to take a chance to recap for our listeners what we've seen so far from the first one, you know, back at the beginning of June up until now. So what have you seen? Look, I mean, these hearings are primarily for the public. It's not for reporters like me who have been kind of covering this for 11 months. It's to tell a story, and it's to tell a story in as compelling oh and God, as understandable a way as possible for someone who doesn't follow politics. And to that end, I think they've been really successful. I mean, it's it a really Swedish. complicated narrative, and they've managed to distill it down into this multi-pronged effort by Trump to overturn the election. And at the very end was the capital attack. It was just one of several kind of schemes he had to try and return himself to the Oval Office. And telling that story is difficult and it's complicated. I think they've done a really good job of that. And in doing so, they've still been able to tease out new information that even the reporters covering it didn't know. And I think the Justice Department didn't know. And that includes stuff like public members of Congress seeking pardons, John Eastman seeking pardons, Rudy Giuliani seeking pardons, and then Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, Perjury, which was Trader explosive Green. in so many different ways, and Jim Jordan, Gymnasium that Jordan, that Trump tried to open a channel of communication to people like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, who had direct ties to the militia groups that stormed the Capitol. You know, you said something interesting there, and I think that this too often goes both unnoticed and unremarked upon, which was January 6th was sort of like his last shot, right? It was his last biggest opportunity, when I say him, Trump's biggest opportunity to find a way to stay in power. But to your point, it had been going on maybe even since before the election, right? I mean, we as an organization were not surprised at all when we heard on election night, you know, in fact, we did win this. And then when we saw that on, I think it was that Saturday after the election, that Joe Biden was deemed the president-elect by the media, the Biden campaign sort of went into transition mode, as it should if it's going to start building a government. But that Monday, the court challenges started. And in fact, you know, as an aside, Hugo, it turns out that on that following Thursday, I think the 11th or Wednesday, Mark Meadows sent an opposition research memo on the Lincoln Project featuring me by name, Rick Wilson by name, Stuart Stevens by name, to Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, saying, here's the document we discussed. Now, that was in response to the fact that we had knocked a bunch of their big white shoe law firms out of these court cases. But what it says to me, Hugo, one, is not to make it too personal, although it is, is that they had been working on something 
and we, by our actions, interrupted some of their plans. They were pissed off, not surprisingly. But it goes back to your point, which was January 6th was the biggest, loudest, most dangerous, most deadly, but it wasn't the first, and it wasn't by far the only thing that they tried to do. Exactly right. I mean, when CNN obtained text messages of Mark Meadows, the one that really stood out to me was the text message from Don Jr. Days after the election, he text Meadows, look, we control the states, the state houses, we control the legislatures, we have total control, right? He knew days after the election that where the Trump campaign needed to take the fight was to the states. That's exactly what they did. They were trying to convince, through John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, they were trying to convince state houses to certify alternate slates of electors. And that was the basis of the entire fake electors plan. And it started days after the election. There is no way that Don Jr. came up with this legal theory by himself days <laughs> after the election. This is something that was in the works for weeks, if not months. They had kind of prepared and laid the groundwork in case Trump lost so that they could deploy it immediately and they would have December 14th was the day that the genuine electors voted in their respective state houses or cast their ballots in their respective state houses for, you know, the candidate that won that state. But it also appears now that they already had the sort of fake electors in place because if they hadn't, they wouldn't have been able to sort of organize and vote for Trump. And then they had all of these certificates printed and ready to go. They had the templates ready to go. I mean, this was not something they did on the fly. This was something that required weeks, if not months, of planning. And now I keep coming back to this Don Jr. text because it's so telling that immediately after the election, and that it was declared that Trump was, people were already mobilizing within Trump's orbit, within the Trump campaign, to set up the groundwork to challenge the election results, even though there was no basis to do so. Right, and I think that's one thing, just as we've seen in recent weeks, whether or not it's the Roe versus Wade decision, whether or not it's the New York gun decision, whether or not it's a lot of these other things that have happened, voting legislation that passed largely in 2021 as a result of basically legislative language being handed to a legislator or what they call the Sentinel from the Heritage Foundation saying, here's what you should do. And the reason I bring up stuff like that that doesn't seem associated, Hugo, is that we should never forget that this shadowy conservative movement is dedicated, well-resourced, and relentless. They never stop. And so to your point, it plays that somebody would have been working on this all along. Who knows what dark recess it was in? Who knew who was involved? But clearly somebody was working on it. Now, the fact that people like Senator Mike Lee from Utah you know, inserted the Kraken lady into it, you know, Rudy Giuliani being half-baked, John Eastman showing up out of nowhere, I guess maybe we're lucky that they were as incompetent as they were, or the people who knew how yeah. to do this stuff either got scared off by actions like ours, or just didn't want anything to do with it. I think it was more of a combination of these guys were trying it out, and they wanted to see what would stick, because a lot of these efforts to overturn the election strike me as you know, throwing everything out the wall and seeing what would stick. They mm -hmm. tried the fake yep, electors, but the fake electors didn't work. They were like, nah, Pence, you should just throw the election to the House anyway. They had all this stuff about the Kraken lawsuit. You know, at one point, they were focusing on foreign election interference claims.
planes, and then when they realized that that wasn't going to fly, they were like, no, it was actually all dead people voting. And they just threw everything they had at it. But to your point about how it was all planned in advance, and how the entire kind of machine operates, right? How, like, the Republican machine, how the Trump campaign, how the external political operatives like Steve Banner and, and Roger Stone and Mike Flynn, and these guys not part of the administration, not part of the campaign, doing their own thing, freelancing, but still all moving towards this common end of trying to return Trump to the presidency illegally. And there were also people like Matt Schlapp, Rick Grinnell, all these other people who were hangers-on, to your point, had no governmental authority, no official authority. Their political power, I guess if that's the right word, derives only from their loyalty to Trump. And they're out there in places like Nevada, you know, coming up with this crazy 2,000 mules thing in, in Atlanta. You know, Rudy's in Philadelphia at the garden shop trying to say, you know, a bunch of black people voted illegally. So to your point, I think the spaghetti analogy is a good one because they went everywhere they could, partially, I think, to convince their own people that it really was stolen, partially, I think, to keep the, the thing moving forward because clearly Trump wanted that. And then lastly, you know, I guess at some point there were official things. And then you had the things like the attorney general of Texas filing briefs, you know, saying, you know, we object to Pennsylvania's electoral votes, like which, again, was a cockamamie theory. But a whole bunch of Republican attorneys general went along with him. This was Trump's favorite thing all the way from the first impeachment to January 6th. Trump loves to use institutions to support his schemes. With the first impeachment, it was trying to get a foreign nation, Ukraine, to say they were going to open an investigation. With the 2020 election, it was getting these institutions like the Texas Amicus Brief. You know, you had all these House Republicans sign on to it. Like, when you have these official bodies or members of Congress or some sort of official seal stamped on these efforts, it gives us um, premature of legitimacy. And he likes to use that and say, look, it's not just me saying it, it's all these institutions that you, the public, revere will say. And he's always trying to weaponize this. And also a very classic strongman tactic, right? If you are in power, use the organs of governmental authority, official authority to your advantage, which we're now seeing, as I said a couple of minutes ago, in states where they're passing laws that make it more difficult to vote, you know, give more oversight about who and what decides what a voter is, who a voter is, whether or not a vote's valid. Obviously, gerrymandering is a centuries-old practice, so, like, that's just one they sort of perfected. But now, you know, you're marching towards January 6th, and as we get to that, again, at some point between November 3rd on Election Day, December 14th when electors vote, and January 6th, some level of planning had to have occurred to have all of those people at the rally, don't even take into the logistics of, like, Trump speaking on stage. That's the easy part. These people had T-shirts printed up. So do you think that as we move forward here, we will see more of the planning for the actual day come into focus? Because it started certainly days, if not weeks ahead of time. Yeah, and, you know, I can kind of run through the timeline a little bit to show you how this will develop, right? December 14, you have the deadline by which states have to certify their states if they want Congress to kill the results. Fast forward to December 16 or 17, a pro-Trump activist tweets, you know, we should do a march on the sick. A day later, Dan Scavino retweets this and gives it immense traction. December 18, Trump meets with Patrick Byrne, Mike Flynn, and Sidney Powell in the Oval Office. And that's when they're trying to convince him to invoke Executive Order 13848. 
which would have given the president emergency powers to declare martial law, seize voting machines, <sighs> make Sydney power special counsel. What a they shit are show. unconvincing, and Trump doesn't buy The show is a dumpster fire. Which says something, which is if Trump ain't buying it as badly as he wants this, how bad was their pitch? Right. But then it, like, it goes into January 6th mode. Like, early hours of the morning, on the 19th, he tweets out, you know, while protests on the 6th, be there. And the committee is expecting to draw a line between that tweet and these militia groups activate. Although it does seem that there was some preparation already happening independently of Trump before that date. And you know, this was already kind of circulating as you know, January 6th, we need to hold a big protest, big rally on that day. But then after the tweet, all of the stop the steal individuals go into place. Yeah, Roger Stone talking to Ali Alexander, Ali Alexander sets up. Well, protest.com and stopthesteal.com. All of the banner images on the websites change to, you know, there's going to be a rally on the 6th. On the Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, the Stop the Steal activists are applying for permits. You know, Why don't they see who is behind those websites? You know, various marches. It all runs into place, and there's a very interesting uh, message. It was that Trump employees, Trump administration itself. Says, you know, I'm planning on plans for January 6th. It'll be ready in the next 48 hours. January 6th, and this is like December 23. I mean, you know, we're still weeks away from this, and this all builds up through the end of December. And you know, you see the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys text messages, they're all getting ready to go, they're all signing up plan stuff, they're all trying to buy stuff. We don't know who these handlers are, we don't know the people above the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who were, you know, connecting what kind of the activists were doing to what the militias were doing. But then, obviously, in early January, they all come to DC, and then on January 5, they're ready to go. Well, and Steve Bannon had said, it's going to be crazy, you got to be here. But, you know, one, one thing I saw, it was a headline, and I read the story a little bit, but not closely enough, you've probably seen it, that, you know, some concern that because if Trump actually believed he won the 2020 election, Hugo, that therefore it would be difficult to prove intent. Ow. That's like saying, you know, the bank robber really believes it's his money. Therefore, it's okay to rob the bank. Move. Like, that just seems like a cockamamie thing. I mean, his intent was clear going back to the first debate when it comes to these militias, right? Stand back and stand, stand by. Now, did he say that on the fly? He probably did. Yeah. That doesn't matter. Like, he knew in that recess of that lizard brain of his what that was to going to cause. He knew that there were them. people who were dedicated to him, they were his might supporters. still be to this day, who would stand and wait for that signal, real or imagined. And so how do you see this idea of intent? Because to your point, Trump is not a linear thinker. But he knows what he wants, chair. and he knows he instinctually how to find people who will help him get it. So that would seem to me anyway, not being a lawyer, to demonstrate some level of intent. So the best response to this You're gonna execute came anybody, from execute this motherfucker. George Conway and his wonderful legal mind. I'm going to defer to him because he the just put it out so clear in the Washington Post, and I tweeted it because I think it was so well phrased. That you know, he says like some are arguing that prosecutors could face difficulty proving criminal intent if Trump sincerely believed he had won the election. Hmm. But uh, he writes, a righteous motive yeah. is not a defense, and criminal acts motivated by an honest belief in the justness of one's cause are still criminal acts. Even if Trump believed there had been election fraud, he wasn't entitled, as you say, to unleash this mob on the Capitol, like intimidate the vice president or you know, send phony electors to Congress or whatever it may be. Irrational belief doesn't negate his criminal intent. He intended to obstruct that certification on January 6th. He intended to defraud or conspire to defraud the United States on January 6th. And I think that's what's really important. 
And so let's fast forward now to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Plan. I'm going to put aside the insanity of Trump grabbing a steering wheel and trying to choke his Secret Service detail there, because that is the one that's gotten the most attention because it further demonstrates his unfitness for office. But it's important because it shows how desperately he wanted to go to the Capitol to literally lead the charge himself, which again also would seem to me to prove that his intent was to obstruct this, to deny this event. You know, the idea now that you know some of this stuff that was it Mike Pence's national security advisor being like, you're not putting him in that car to, you know, a Secret Service agent in the West Wing, right? Like, he's not going to get in that car. You guys will fly him to Alaska or something. I mean, I was lucky enough to work at the White House, Hugo, and be involved in a lot of the stuff that involved security. I mean, I was an advanced guy, but we were around each other all the time, right? Because that's where the sort of rubber met the road of politics that's external to the White House. So someone who's a veteran of that stuff, hearing and seeing this stuff, it's so unbelievable. You couldn't make it up. If you went to a Hollywood writer's room, they'd laugh you out. But mm. here we are now in a situation where Tony Ornato, the deputy chief of staff, who's a, still an active Secret Service agent, is telling, you know, some other agent to put Pence in the car. And Keith Kellogg is like, absolutely not. He ain't getting in that car. And mm-hmm. so just all of this stuff starts swirling. And I wonder, from your perspective and the research you've done and the reading you've done and your observations, how much of this was intentional and how much of it was sort of like were things it's overtaken by events, like stuff just started rolling and it got out of the box. It was uncontrollable. I think that's very difficult to establish at the moment. We're trying anything. You know, we can only You're right. We're trying anything. What Ornano has told the committee, what Cassie Hutchinson has testified it. to. You know, yes. I think we can safely say that Hutchinson testifying under oath, it was true that Trump desperately wanted to go to the Capitol. There was no concrete plan what to do when he got to the Capitol, whether he was going to give a speech on the inaugural platform or if he was going to go to the House and literally obstruct it himself. It's not clear, but obviously Trump beat up some cops? to the Capitol. Ornato has told the committee in his deposition that you know he wasn't exactly clear as to what vice president was doing and where he was, which is also very strange. I mean, he told the committee that he believed Pence at one point was going back to the residence. There's a lot of accounts that are difficult to believe or put in place. We know Ornato has a history of distorting the truth or maybe obfuscating the truth to some degree. And so I don't think we should put too much stock in what he was saying. But either way, there does seem to be this central thread of Trump wanting to go to the Capitol, was not concerned about Pence's safety or what Pence was doing because he, said he Trump, had a he plan said in mind. Pence that deserved plan was it. to make sure that certification was stopped. He could see Pence wasn't doing it. So maybe it was in his mind that he wanted to go in and do it himself. Who knows? But there is something very sinister about the entire episode, and I think we've probably not heard the end of that yet. So we know that the testimony so far has been smart in that it's been, if it's not exclusively Republicans or, you know, Republican lawyers who served in a Trump administration role, it's pretty nearly unanimously Republican, you know, office holders, officials, whatever. There's the documentarian, the Capitol Police, obviously. Where do you see it going from here? I know that as of tomorrow, there'll be the next hearing. How do you see the arc developing up to this point? Well, the next hearing is supposed to be Raskin leading the examination of how the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers prepared in the weeks leading up to the attack and then actually stormed the Capitol and how all the breaches were done by the Proud Boys and like all the key moments. And then there is at some point we expect there to be another or a final hearing about the 100 
87 minutes on the Capitol attack where Trump sat back and did nothing. And, you know, this kind of speaks to the inaction part of the criminal statute where, you know, through action or inaction, he obstructed an official proceeding. I think there needs to be, and I don't know if the committee agrees with me, but I think there needs to be a hearing in the middle that kind of bridges these two things, right? You have to show to the American public how these two things are connected, either through intents and like a meeting of the minds almost, right? I mean, if you're trying to show a conspiracy, you've got to show a meeting of the minds. You have to show that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that stormed the Capitol didn't do it because they wanted to storm the Capitol. They wanted to do it because they wanted to stop the certification. Well, guess who else wanted to stop the certification? Freaking Trump. And you have to make that connection. You've got to spell it out for people because otherwise people, I think, see this in two kind of disparate lenses. They see, oh, 